let's see. Okay, so if you remember with me, uh, last week we were in Acts chapter 8, and as I was talking about as we watched the video about uh, Lance, that Philip was taken from a large group of believers, there was a big revival in Samaria, and it was a large region, and as he was used to impact a lot of people there and share the gospel with them, and they responded, um, there was great joy in the city, and then God decided he wanted to take Philip and do something completely different. He wanted to send him to a spot where no one was, to a desert, and as he sent him there, he got him there at just the right time where his path literally crossed with this Ethiopian eunuch who was actually just leaving the feast that was in Jerusalem, and he was heading back to his own country in Ethiopia. Now, oftentimes we think of the way that God works, and we don't realize how intricately he is involved in the life of, you know, every one of the believers that, you know, we're his. He wants to use us. He didn't just save us so that we could just hang out. He, he saved us because he wants to impact the world through us. Jesus said in John chapter 16, he says, it's better for you that I go back to the Father, but in that point, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in you, and he's going to, through you, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And when he does that, and he convicts a person, there are different responses. Uh, we saw the response by the eunuch, the eunuch, uh, the Ethiopian man that was on the way back to Egypt, as he was on the way back, what happened was he was reading the scriptures. He had just left Jerusalem. He had just left the epicenter of where all the people were, of the people of God that God chose, not because they were special, but just because he chose to bless the world through the nation of Israel, through the descendants of Abraham. He had just left this place that was full of people that were there worshiping God, and, and he wanted to know more about this God. It doesn't say why he was there. It just says that he was there. He was just at the feast. And as he was going back home, he had a copy of the scriptures and he was reading them. Now, when anybody starts to seek the Lord, it's only a sign that the Holy Spirit is always, he's already working on them. He's already drawing them to a place where they realize that they have sin and they need a savior. No man seeks after God on his own. The only way that someone seeks after God is if the Holy Spirit is convicting them. And so as the Holy Spirit was convicting this Ethiopian man, he started reading scripture. That was his response. He was like, I want to know more. I want to figure out who this God is and what he's about and why does he care about me at all? And so he's reading in Isaiah 53. And just at the time where he's really struggling with some questions, here comes this man by the name of Philip. And God tells him, I want you to go overtake that chariot. I want you to, to talk to that man. And as he comes alongside, like the Holy Spirit does, Philip is used to be literally the hands and feet of Jesus as he walks up. And the man goes, and he asks the man, he goes, do you know what you're reading? And he said, no, how can I know unless somebody tells me? And so Philip gets in the chariot as he, at his invitation and, asks, and, and starts to read the scripture with him. And from Isaiah 53, which is the account of Jesus' death and how he would die and all the things that would take place that were told years in advance, he explains this is, not, he's not talking, Isaiah's not talking about himself, he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And he explains from that point that Jesus was in fact the Son of God, and that he still is alive, and that he resurrected from the dead, and he witnessed him. And Philip was a, a partaker of the salvation that was purchased 
by his death. And so now that Philip's been used and, and God's used him in this spot, he's going to move him in a different direction. And he takes him to a place called Ashdod, which was just an Old Testament place in Israel. And then he takes him as far as Caesarea. And he kind of just leaps off the scene in the middle of nowhere. Because if you look there in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, it says, When they came up out of the water, remember Philip had witnessed to the eunuch, and then the, the Ethiopian man said, well, what's going to keep me from being baptized? There's water over there. Let's do this. And so he baptizes him. And as they come up out of the water, it says, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now, it's important that we see that he went on his way rejoicing because this man's hope, this man's trust was not in Philip. Philip was a guy that God used, and though Philip kind of disappeared from this Ethiopian man's life, he had pointed him, in the few moments that he had with him, he pointed him to Jesus. He said, I want you to hope in this man because he's the Savior of the world. And because Philip kind of rushes off the scene and he leaves, what happens is that as he leaves, the Ethiopian man's hope is not lost because his friend left, because he still has Jesus. It says there in that verse that he went on his way rejoicing. Where was he going? He was going back to Egypt or Ethiopia. He was headed back to where he was from. And that man was going to impact every person that he met for the rest of his life. So though Philip was taken away from this big group of believers in Samaria and he only went to witness to one person, we go, well, it's kind of a step back, isn't it? No, because every person that you and I share the gospel with, every person that you and I Tell Jesus, tell about Jesus, yeah, share Jesus with. Basically what happens is every person that we know has a kingdom of their own. They have their own realm of influence. So you're never witnessing to just one person. You're always witnessing to one person who knows many persons. How many of us in here only know one person? None of us. We're all intricately linked to our families, uh, to people that we might work with, people that we see at baseball games downtown. I mean, it just, no person is an island. And so when he goes and witnesses to this Ethiopian man, he just so happens to be, you know, secondhand to the queen of Ethiopia. But even the people that we think of as common have an influence on many people. And so when we're sharing Jesus with them, they basically become a vessel that will share Jesus with all the people they know. So... From that point on, we see the work that God used Philip to do. We see the Holy Spirit doing acts in him. We need to remember that the book of Acts is not about the people that God uses, but it's about the Holy Spirit who has been given to empower every Christian believer to be a witness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, When I send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and he will make you witnesses in Jerusalem, wherever you're from, in Judea and Samaria, the areas surrounding where you're from, and to the outer reaches of the earth, to every corner of the earth. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, in fact, that it, it was better that he went to the Father and sent the Spirit because Jesus could only, he was human. He could only be in one location at one time. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's in every one of us all at the same time. And then basically the work is multiplied. And so while Philip was being used to encourage this Ethiopian man, on the, in a completely different location, you have Paul. 
And that's what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So it says there that Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So this man Saul, he's still breathing out threats, but when did this start? And I think it's important that we notice this. This wasn't something that just happened and we didn't get to read about it. We actually looked at it in uh, Acts chapter 7 in verse um, 54. So if you'll turn one page to your left, it says uh, there in Acts chapter 7, Stephen had just given his testimony to the Sanhedrin. He had shared how God had always been faithful to them and had given them the plan of salvation. Basically, you know, he gave them the law. He gave them the oracles of the scripture. He wanted them to be a light to all the other nations. And they kind of fancied themselves greater than anyone else because, you know, God picked them. They must be something awesome. But instead, Stephen told them, God was always faithful to you and he always has been and he still is. And you guys draw near to him with your lips, but you reject him with your hearts. And so when he shared the truth to them that, hey, you think you're really something, but inwardly you're just as bad off as everyone else. In verse 54 of chapter 7, it says, when they heard these things, they were furious, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. They basically covered their ears. They pressed them together and they said, la, 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 we can't hear you. We're not listening. They ran at him all together. And it says there in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses Those who were watching this event take place, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. Verse one there says, Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Saul saw this happen. He saw this man give this testimony, and then he saw not only the fact that they had stoned him to death and that he died, but he saw how he died. He had no reason to be praying for these men as they were stoning him to death. And the way that he died was such a, a parallel is such an imitation of how Jesus died. Saul, no, no doubt, had heard the account. Maybe he was even there himself when Jesus was put to death on the cross. He, he no doubt, had heard the account of how Jesus, not only had he died, but he died like a real man. He laid down his life willingly. And then when he was dying, he was witnessing to the man on the cross. He was praying that the sin that had just been committed against him would not be accounted against those who had basically put him up to trial and lied about him. He said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And Stephen said the exact same thing as he 
related with his Savior. He knew what he was supposed to be because he was imitating Christ. And then as he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice as he was being stoned to death, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So Saul saw this. He was holding the coats of everyone that was killing Stephen. And then it says there, Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. Now this consenting, I I think of a permission slip. Think of the forms that your kids bring home and they say, hey, I... If, I can, if I'm going to do this with my, my school, they, they, want me to, they want you to fill out a permission slip and sign that you agree that this is okay. So I wanted to look up the word consent. Consenting is to think well of, to be pleased with, or agree with something. So when it says that Saul agreed with it, he was consenting to it, he thought that this was the thing that should have happened. He, this, is, this is right. This is righteous. You see, Saul was a Pharisee, and he said, he believed, that if someone came along, and scriptures teach this, and they teach, they say, I am God. They claim to be God, and then they, and then they, they have people follow after them. They, you weren't just supposed to accept it. You needed to check into what they were doing. So the Pharisees really thought that they were being righteous by putting to death anyone who would follow Jesus because Jesus was claiming to be God. So they thought he was blaspheming. And so Saul, instead of dealing with this conviction that God was placing on his heart, showing him, man, you think you're righteous, but this man just died a righteous death. The Holy Spirit is just tapping on his shoulder. You know he's right. You know he's right. You know you're not right in your heart. You know you need to deal with your own sin. You're trying to deal with everyone else's and show how great you are, but God wants you to deal with you. He wants it to start with you. So Saul, like any legalistic, prideful person, instead of dealing with his own sin, he goes, you know what, I'll do more religious stuff. I'll get more involved in the work of the Pharisees. I'm going to go and shut down these people that claim to follow Jesus. And so his practice now is he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's like Stephen's death was like chum in the water for those sharks. I talked about a few weeks ago, you guys have ever watched Shark Week. You know, like they, in order to get the sharks to come to the boat, they throw something that's bloody pieces of fish in the water, and basically it makes the sharks go nuts. And for those who hated Jesus, for those who were against him completely and wanted him to be silenced, Stephen's death was like an open, oh, so we can get rid of them now. We can put them to death. And so Saul here in chapter 9, he's taking this to the nth degree. He's like, you know what? If we get to shut them down, and this is making me feel bad about myself. I'm going to pursue every person that follows Jesus because I don't like him. I don't like his followers. And I want to stop them. And so the religious thing to do is to go defend God. He felt like he was defending God. And so he went out and he got letters from the high priest even. He was going to do it the right way. He was going to get permission, consent. He was going to get that from the high priest so he could go out and persecute these believers of Jesus that, so that he might bring them bound in shackles to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So as God has shined this light on Saul. Notice where he's done it. 
He's done it while Saul is sinning against him. He's met him right on the road, on the path that he was on, the path that was leading towards not only the destruction of those that he would destroy, but also himself. He was destroying himself by destroying followers of Jesus. And so God met him right there and he shone this light from heaven and then he fell to the ground. This light was so bright and knocked Saul on his backside. And as he fell to the ground, the words that he heard, God speaking to him in a voice audible to only him it seems, even though everyone around him heard something but they weren't sure what it was. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? We oftentimes think that you know, God's worried about it because you know, people are persecuting other people. But notice that God takes it very personally. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting not other Christians, not my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? See, when you mess with God's people, when, God met, when, when the enemies of the Lord mess with us, God takes it personally and he gets involved personally. So he says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And he said, who are you, Lord? I've obviously offended you, Lord. Whoever you are, I don't know who you are, but I don't know where this voice is coming from, but you're obviously offended. Who are you? Who's, who's this voice speaking to me? For the first time, he's hearing the voice of the Lord, and it's like an overwhelming, what have I done? I've messed up something. So verse uh, four continues, excuse me, five continues, then the Lord answered him, He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say it's hard for you to kick against the goads? Well, think about the episode with Stephen. Stephen's testimony was Stephen speaking the heart of the Lord to all these Pharisees, all these religious followers that were rejecting God with their hearts. And so that was God's message to everyone that was going to hear, including Saul. It was conviction. This, was, this testimony Stephen gave was supposed to drive them to the Lord, and instead it took Saul and sent him on a rampage trying to shut up all the voices that were telling him he was in sin. And so you have Saul here asking the question, Lord, what do you, you know, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. You're persecuting me. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was a farmer's term, and it was like this big long stick that had sharp object on the end. Sometimes it was just a, like something like a nail sticking out of the end. And it was something that a farmer would use when he was using, because they didn't have tractors, he was using a horse or a donkey, and it was pulling a plow just by its own strength. And so, I don't know about you guys, but you know, donkeys sometimes can get a little bit stubborn. And so they would take this big long stick while they were behind the plow trying to guide the plow while the horse was pulling it or the the donkey and they would take the stick and they would whack the back of the animal in order to get it to keep going if it would try to stop or get lazy. And so instead sometimes these animals, instead of working harder and going, oh, I don't like that that ouchy pain on the back of my, my hiney, they would stop and instead of doing what the goad was supposed to do, get them going more, they would kick at it to try to get it to stop. They would stay in their own spot. They didn't want to move anymore. They were done. And they would kick at the goad so they wouldn't have to deal with the annoying pain that it would cause. Much in the same way, he's saying, it's hard for you to kick against the goad, Saul. I'm not going to stop pursuing you. 
The goad for Saul was the Holy Spirit going, you need to deal with your sin. You're not righteous. You know you can't work harder and cause yourself to be righteous anymore. You know this isn't working. You need a different system. And that goad was the Holy Spirit going, come on, I'm not going to stop pursuing you. Turn to me. Repent. Deal with this thing. And so instead of dealing with it, instead of listening to the voice of the Lord, he turned up the volume of his life. He went much harder for the world and all his own pursuits and ignored the Lord. And so now he's in this spot. He's rejected God for so long. God's like, I'm not done with you. And he knocks him down. He says, I want to get your attention, Saul. And all, the only thing that will cause me to get your attention is if I knock you on your butt. So he knocks him on his butt. And then he speaks to him. But notice the response here. Notice Saul, where he's at. In verse 6 it says, He, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to give you the first step. I want you to go into the city. And of course at this time, I don't know about you guys, but I've been in trouble before. I've gotten in trouble. I've done something. And my dad has caught me. And the first thing is, is he knocks me on my butt. And of course at that point, he's so mad, he sends me to my room. Now when you're sitting in your room, you're like, just pound me now. Just, just give me a hiney whooping. Just be done with it. But no, there's this time of waiting. And I look back and I go, I'm glad he waited because he was probably pretty angry when he found out I had done something wrong. Uh, Sometimes in our wrath as parents, we, we want to punish right away. And sometimes we need to wait a little bit, kind of lay off and take a breather. Okay, what kind of punishment is realistically right? But in the meantime, your kid's sitting in their room thinking, oh my gosh, how bad is it going to be this time? This, is, this could be really bad or it could be really good. This silence is killing me. I wonder what's going to happen to me. I wonder what my punishment's going to be. So he says, go to your room, basically. Go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. They heard the conversation. They heard something going on, but they didn't see anybody. So verse 8 says, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, notice Saul's reaction to this conversation with the Lord. He's not saying, hey, I've got a a bone to pick with you. He's not saying, hey, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, when I get to heaven, I've got a lot of things I want to ask God about. Notice what his reaction is to the presence of God. Number one, fear. Verse six says, he was trembling and astonished. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Saul's deal, the reason he was rejecting Jesus, is the reason he was rejecting the, the goading that God was giving him was because he didn't fear God. He didn't fear God at all. He was his own God. He knew what his plans were. He was going to do his own thing. Now he's got the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning. That's where it starts. Number two, he's all ears. He's now willing to listen to the voice of the Lord. He asked the Lord for direction. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord tells him, I want you to go into the city. I want you to wait. So number three, number one, he's, 
He's fearing the Lord. Number two, he's all ears. He's listening. Number three, he's surrendered and he's obedient. He goes into the city and he waits. Even though he's been blinded by the Lord, he gets to go into the city and he waits. This first step of obedience Saul takes is a step of faith. It's a step of faith. I want you to go into Damascus. Everyone in Damascus knows that Saul's getting ready to come up there and lock up anybody who believes. They find out that he's been blinded. This is a scary thing for him. And so he goes. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I think it is, says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul wrote that verse. And I wonder if he wrote that verse thinking about his first encounter with the true and living God going, hey, I walked by sight my whole life, and the day I met the Lord, he blinded me so that I could see him. And so he's now getting to practice what he's going to later write. He walks by faith, not by sight. Not, God, not, God only gives him the first step, yet Saul does not question why or what's next. He just obeys, much like when we get in, in trouble and, and our parents are like, go to your room, and I will be there in a little while. We're obedient because we, you know, we don't want to make it worse on ourselves. Um, so notice that once Saul arrived in Damascus, though this is where he planned to go, this was not how he planned to spend his time there. And as he's there, it says there, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He's been blinded and all of a sudden he's lost his appetite. <laughs> have you ever lost your appetite? Very few times have I ever, ever lost my appetite. I love food. The only times I lose my appetite is when I'm sick or when I'm really nervous about something. Uh, I think Saul is a little bit nervous about what's going to happen now that he's in the hands of the Lord. Little does he know that this is the safest place that any human being can be in the hands of the Lord. When he chastises people, when he allows some sort of punishment to come in our lives, it's not only for our safety, but it's because we're his children. He loves us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says that God chastises every son whom he receives. And I think that's important that we know that, that God, when he chastises us, when he knocks us on our butt because we're being disobedient, it's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to continue to do the thing, the sin. Sin always hurts us. It doesn't just hurt others, it hurts us. And so that's where we're at. So verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision. So the Holy Spirit has worked in different locations and he's doing it at the same time. And he's working in the heart of Saul as he's sitting there waiting in time out. That's what we'll call it. And then he's also working in the heart of Ananias because Ananias is a believer, but he's still got some growing to do. So God's going to call him to a step of faith as well. So we see there it says, the Lord said to him in a vision, verse 10, Ananias, he said. So he's calling out his name. Hey, Ananias. And Ananias answers, here I am, Lord. And this makes me think of Samuel when Samuel first heard the voice of the Lord. He said, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli, the guy that took control of his, he became his dad kind of in the temple there. He said, you know, Samuel thought that Eli was calling out his voice. And so Samuel would walk into Eli's bedroom and of course, Eli would go, I didn't say anything. Go back to sleep. And then he'd go back to his bed. And Samuel, Samuel. And he was hearing this audible voice. And he would walk back and go, Eli, did you call me? No, I didn't call you. 
Go back to bed. You're... And finally, Eli picks it up. The Lord's trying to speak to you, Samuel. So he says, go back to your bed. That's the voice of the Lord. When he calls out to you again, answer, speak. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. In other words, I'm listening. I'm all ears. What do you want to say to me? And so Ananias is in this position. He says, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Go figure, that's you. Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority for the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go anyway. Basically, go anyway, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias is sitting there. He hears the voice of the Lord. He's, he's already surrendered to the Lord. This is not a salvation call. This is a, hey, Ananias, you're getting called into duty. This is what I want you to do today. And Ananias says, okay, Lord, tell me what you got. He's probably been obedient in a couple other things. But just as this walk of faith that we're in, God calls us to something. He sees that we're faithful in it. And then he calls us to something else. And most of the time, something harder the next time. He's always wanting to stretch us just a little bit more. I want to show you guys that that you can be faithful. I want to show you that you can trust me in this thing too. God's wanting to gain more ground in our hearts so that we learn to trust him. Ananias answers and said, Lord, I'm ready. What do you want me to do? And he says, okay, I want you to to go and I want you to find Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus? You want me to go to that terrorist? He's coming here to put us all in jail that believe in you and follow Jesus. Why would you send me to him? And the Lord says, go, go anyway. He's a chosen vessel of mine. I've basically taken all his teeth out. He doesn't have any bite anymore. I've knocked him down. He doesn't have any eyesight. He's gotten a vision from me and I want you to go and fulfill it. I've told him that I'm going to send you Ananias and I've told him that I'm going to use you to bless him. Now I want you to go and do that. Now why didn't God just speak to Ananias? Excuse me, he's speaking to Ananias. Why didn't he just speak to Saul and say, hey, I love you and it's going to be okay. I want to use you. Why didn't he just do that? Why doesn't God just take and put a megaphone on the moon and say, Jesus is Lord, follow him. God loves you. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He uses people to speak to people because oftentimes we get this distant picture of God and God wants to be brought into our situation by the tangible touch, the anointing of a person speaking to us. He wants to remind us not only is he faithful to speak to us, but he's speaking to other people about us. That's how much he cares. And he sends Ananias, says there, I want you to go. I want you to lay your hands on him to pray for him so that he might receive his sight. And then he's going to lay his hands on him and pray that he would receive the Holy Spirit. So verse 17 says, Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came 
has sent me that you may receive your sight. He wants to heal you and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a tender term to speak to a terrorist with. Brother Saul. He doesn't say, hey, you guy that's been killing my people. He doesn't say, hey, you that watched Stephen die. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, I'm his ambassador. Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says there in verse 18, immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. Saul's been touched personally by an individual that had all the reasons in the world to fear him. And he's received forgiveness. Not only from God, it's receiving forgiveness from God, but God's going to send an ambassador, a person to say, God's forgiven you. You're okay. I love you. God's going to do something new. Though all the stuff that you've done against God, He's forgiven you. He wants to do something completely different. So when he had received food, it says there his, his stomach, all of a sudden he was hungry again. He was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So Saul has received forgiveness. He's recognized that God is showing him mercy. He's not giving him what he deserves. Saul deserved death. Saul had persecuted God's people. But God said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to save him. I'm going to open up his eyes. I'm going to give him a new call. I'm going to give him a new goal in life to pursue righteousness God's way. And notice the response. After Ananias laid his hands on him, he received the Holy Spirit and his sight back. Verse 20 says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues and that he is the Son of God. And then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Saul, on the way to Damascus at the beginning of this chapter, he was bringing out threats and murder. And God knocks him on his butt, blinds him, sends him to time out, speaks to him through Ananias, And the result of that is Saul is turned around. He's repenting. His lifestyle of death and violence and going out and pursuing, you know, killing Christians has turned around. And what he went to Damascus for was to put them to death, to put them in prison, to shut them up. And what he's going to do instead is he's going to preach to them the gospel of freedom. He's going to preach to them the gospel of peace. This man of war is now a man of peace. And he's going to share with those that he intended to do away with going to share with them life. Death squashed out, life brought through Saul by the Holy Spirit. That's what God does in a life. I think oftentimes we see people come to Christ and they, they become a little bit better, but there's not a direct contrast. Saul was not a man like that. What he believed, he practiced. And so his life looked diametrically different than it was before Jesus. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. He's going to share this testimony. He's going to give us a little bit more insight to it. He's going to share it before the governor, Felix. He's going to share it before the Roman uh, uh, emperor. He's going to share it before the council at Jerusalem. Though I was once completely against Jesus, 
Now I've seen that He is, in fact, God in the flesh, and He's forgiven me. So Father, thank You so much for the testimony of Saul, showing us that You are above and You are beyond all of the darkness of this world. You're able to break through even the darkest and the most religious of hearts. Father, help us to realize that and to see the people that You've surrounded us with, not as untouchable or unreachable, but to see that even though they are so far away, so were we once. I was once so far away from you, and yet you knocked me on my hind end, and you turned me around. You forgave me of my sin. You changed my heart and gave me a new one. And Father, now, now no longer do I have a purpose to pursue my own goals or to persecute towards things that are evil but I have a desire to pursue the righteousness of God and to build your kingdom. And so, Lord, I I thank you for the testimony of Saul that's so inspiring because Saul wasn't saved because he was great. He was saved because he was a hate-filled murderer and he desired to kill your people and you loved him enough to pursue him anyway. You didn't count that sin against him. You desired to do something different. You desired to save him and to bring him into a life of joy and abundance and peace with you. You wanted to know him personally. And Father, thank you that your love is able to to break through all our sin. So Father, as we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, Lord, may we worship you for that. May we give uh, that testimony to those that don't know you. I once was blind, but now I see. And Lord, thank you that you gave us sight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song.